What's up? It's your hosts, Megan. And your hosts, Harini. <laughs> I already did that part for you. I said host for us, but it's okay. I know. It's okay. I know. It's all good. You came up with a good system, and I forget it every every episode. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I was less listening to, of course, another John Stewart podcast episode, and so he he had a moment, but also he's... he's uh, newer in this podcast game in some ways right but he had a moment in uh, the beginning of one of his recent episodes where he was like he's like do we gotta keep like introducing ourselves like what's the format what we harini you and i have been doing this for a whole goddamn year and some change at this point yeah i think we should just talk i i I I don't even want to say my name anymore no (laughs) i don't want you guys to know who i am anymore no yeah if if you're just just now getting into our content you just gotta learn who we are through other uh, means our opinions <laughs> other means you our guys opinions do your own how we search totes totes because essentially at the end okay. of the day this is a private <laughs> podcast i'm only talking to megan so i would never introduce myself to megan <laughs> that's true like if we were having a conversation yeah. in real life i wouldn't be like hey i'm megan <laughs> dude if you did that i'd be like whoa we gotta take you to the er <laughs> Every time we met up, I know. I start that way. Hey, I'm Megan. Oh my god! Now I'm just gonna do that just to be funny. Okay. All right, sh- let's do it. Shut up, Harini. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. So it's uh, it's your turn today to talk to us about um, a new topic, oh, dude. And to be honest, I'm excited because <clears throat> I feel like I haven't heard your voice in a minute. I, know. I did just do a two parter, and part of me is like, that's right. Thank God I get a break. <laughs> I know, and girl, you're gonna get a, a big one because. Wait, Megan, did I tell you what I was going to do this story about? I don't think you did. Okay. You might have mentioned it like very briefly in our past recordings as we're setting right, up. Right, but right, right. That shit went out the I window know, I know. for me. So. Totally. I agree. Yeah. So <laughs> the reason why is because I think this is going to be another first. We had a great historical first last time. Megan did her first two-parter. That was phenomenal. And this might be another historical moment where you guys are going to have to listen to my voice maybe another episode longer. I think I'm, this might be a three-parter. I was just, I was like, she's going to say the th- 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 three word. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. I don't know. So it might be a three-part episode the topic of tonight was totally inspired by a show first a tv show that i watched called dope sick i think i told Mm -hmm. megan it but it stars michael keaton who actually won best actor at the sag awards last night for dope sick Mm. and Mm -hmm. i don't know if you watched that but his if you guys haven't seen dope sick that's fine if you have definitely go watch his acceptance speech very powerful Mm. very unexpectedly emotional from him well deserved right i i still have to watch dope sick and i'll have to watch his speech but what i did pick up from like my tabloid news is that he had to hustle to the podium to get his award because he was like in the bathroom yes and uh salma was the one announcing it and it was like an awkward Mm -hmm. like she actually like didn't know what to do she's like uh is this is he not like actually here or did we get this right right because she probably she probably saw him yeah. earlier. She's like, I definitely yeah, saw him in the building. Like, Do my eyes deceive me? Like, where is he? And it it was like a, yeah. a good minute before he actually like came up on stage, and he definitely ran his way wow. up there. <laughs> yeah, 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 
I, I love Michael Keaton. I love he's his so work. Uh, I think he's just he's, he's just so, so good. Anyway, so okay. the inspiration was Dope Sick. Really amazing series on Hulu. So you can watch that. I also watched Crime of the Century on HBO Max. Mm. And there's just a slurry. I literally have like 20 other sources, which mm. I guess I can name now. But I think I might just do it as a separate bit at the end on my own. So that, Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, let's get into the story. Okay, so this is about the opioid epidemic, specifically the story surrounding OxyContin and Purdue Pharma. If you guys don't know what any Mm -hmm. of that means, you're in the right place, because I'm going to tell you in excruciating Mm -hmm. detail. So this part of the story is going to come from The Crime of the Century, which is the documentary, the HBO documentary. And the reason why I want to start with this is because it gives us a really great overview of what opioids are, where where they came from, and just like their historical precedent throughout our timeline on Earth. So let's just start there. So some quick facts to start us off. Since 2000, 100,000 people have died due to an opioid overdose. And that is only increasing, as we know from Megan's episode on fentanyl. And unfortunately, it's, it's just rising every day. Every 25 minutes, a baby is born with withdrawal. The U.S. government estimates that the cost of opioid abuse is over $1 trillion. Okay. So let's talk about opioids in their natural form. So again, some of this might be repeat from uh, Megan's episode, but a good mm-hmm. recap. Opioids in their natural form come from the poppy flower, but it's not actually from the flower. It comes from the pod. It oozes from the poppy mm. pod. So if you watch this documentary, you'll see the way that they do it is they actually, they use the term lacerate. They lacerate the edge of the pod mm-hmm. and then oozes out is actually what they use to create opium. And it's actually a very laborious process to do that. And until quite recently, it's been done by hand. Actually, it's still being done by hand in India, as far as I know. It was first cultivated vast fields in the flower form, and it was used during the reign of King Tut in Egypt. And then from there, it was sold throughout the Mediterranean through Alexander the Great, who expanded its use Hmm. to India, where it is still grown by hand. During the Spanish Inquisition, the Catholics called the stuff the devil's drug, essentially. And by the 16th century, opium Hmm. resin was rolled into black pills called quote, stones of immortality mm-hmm. and marketed as laudanum, which is just really interesting to me. Even mm-hmm. that early on, the 16th century, they're already putting into pill form. Like, they're, like, on it. Right. Are you going to talk? Uh, sorry, you're probably right about to say it. Are you going to give, like, a little history on no. laudanum, too? No, I'm That's not. That's so interesting. Okay. Well, it's interesting in, in the grand scheme of o- opioid addiction is that, okay, no, no, sorry, it's fine. I'm tangenting. But I recently rewatched Interview with a Vampire, and there's one scene where Kirsten Dunst, amazing <laughs> as a child actress in this movie, she it's the scene where she kills. Oh, I forgot Tom Cruise's character. Mm. He has a French mm. name. Oh, I forgot his name. Anyway, so basically, child Kirsten Dunst in vampire form, yeah. she kills Tom Cruise's character via poisoning yeah. two humans with laudanum and then feeding their dead oh. blood to Tom Cruise, which apparently in their this movie's vampire lore, if you drink like a dead person's blood, then you mm-hmm. like get sick slash die mm-hmm. or you're more vulnerable as a vampire right. to 
actually dying. So after she, after he feeds on them, not knowing, knowing that these people are dead from laudanum, she like stabs, slashes oh his throat and it's great. And there's like, it's so bloody and <laughs> wonderful and she's great. <laughs> that said, it made me look up, it made me look up laudanum and a little bit of its history. And like, uh, when laudanum, laudanum was in its heyday, like we had a huge opioid mm-hmm. epidemic back then Absolutely. too. Like people were dying from, um, abusing laudanum. Right intentionally and unintentionally so it's just um this is just to say that uh, we've had oh, a history yeah. of opioid epidemics oh, in our yeah. country absolutely for a long no, that's time. a great great tip yeah. and i have mm-hmm. a little bit of color i can add to that not much but during the industrial revolution laudanum was given to babies by mothers who can afford child care but needed something to keep mm. their children calm and at bay while they worked in the factories all day. And my first thought goes to right. our Fossey Jaw girls, our Radium girls. They're in the factories all day, also getting poisoned. Mm. And then their mm-hmm. babies are basically addicted at home, which is so sad. Right. But exactly to Megan's point, we were addicted sometimes intentionally or unintentionally, right? We didn't know. Like we were, it, This was marketed as a medicinal product mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Then, as a collective, we realized we could smoke opium, and that market started to take off in China, where the addiction Mm -hmm. started to spread universally, and at a higher content and a higher potent form. When you smoke Mm -hmm. that shit or snort it, you know, game over. The East India Trading Company would manufacture the opium into cannonballs and then ship them off to Chinese merchants called the Hong. In America, John Jacob Astor and mm-hmm. FDR's grandpappy, I wrote, Warren Delano, put their money into the business by investing <laughs> in opium fields in Turkey. Sorry. 1839, <laughs> opium was the world's most traded commodity. A Chinese emperor at the time became concerned with a growing mm-hmm. addiction, so he appointed a drug czar who dumped, it, who dumped thousands of opium-filled cannibals into the sea. Of course, the British Empire was fierce, and they encouraged mm. their soldiers to fight the Chinese over this. So that's a little bit of that, like pre-colonial, that kind mm. of thing. Then it becomes a prescription drug. Because at that point in the 16th, 17th mm-hmm. century, sorry, 19th century Industrial Revolution, like you said, there becomes an addiction. There is an epidemic that we go through, and then it's mm-hmm. it's not condoned. They're like, we should not be using this. This should not be mm-hmm. over-the-counter. And... Because everything got restricted, companies were right. like, okay, let's just purely market it as for medicinal use because there's such a huge market here, but it's going untapped by everyone being like, oh, this is bad, even though it is. So they decided to make it a prescription drug. So then mm-hmm. Merck launches right. Morphine, and then Bayer comes out pretty much the same year with their pain reliever called Heroin. Thankfully, we come to the realization that heroin is extremely addictive Mm. and not safe. So they ban it as having no medical purpose. This paved the way for the Italian mafia and Mexican cartels to continue the flow Mm. of supply in the black markets. Meanwhile, pharmas began to mass produce their opioids Mm. like morphine and oxycodone. The uncomfortable truth is that the illegal drug trade and the legal drug trade of opioids via pharma companies are directly as well as indirectly connected. They both fulfill a desperate need for opioids and they just have Mm. us hooked. All right. So that's a little history and overview. So now to Purdue Pharma and Oxycontin. Okay. Megan, have you been to, have you been to New York? I have. Have you been to the Met? 
I have. Okay. So in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, there is Temple of Dender, a monument mm. built from sandstone that was originally constructed along the Nile River almost two millennia ago and okay. then was transported to the Met brick by brick as a gift from the Egyptian government. This space, which opened in 1978, is known as the Sackler Wing. There's also more of these. So they have Sackler Gallery in Washington, Sackler Museum at Harvard, Sackler mm-hmm. Center for Arts and Education at the Guggenheim Museum, Sackler Wing at the Louvre, mm. Columbia, Oxford, and many, many more. Over the course of the company's history, the Sackler family accumulated more than $14 billion in mm. profit, and they continue to accumulate from their opioid company, Purdue Pharma. Mm. They also manufactured Valium, fentanyl, oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, oxycodone extended release, also known as OxyContin. Mm -hmm. So who are the Sacklers? The Sackler dynasty starts with three Brooklyn-born brothers, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond Sackler. Their parents were immigrants from Eastern Europe in the early 19th century who came to Flatbush, Brooklyn, in -hmm. pursuit of a better life. Like many first-generation immigrants at that time and even now, the three brothers were hungry to make a name for the su- to make a name for themselves, and they did just that. Mm. All three brothers go to medical school, and all three become physicians. Mm. Arthur, the eldest brother, he winds up working at a mental asylum as one of the doctors on staff. He then brings his two other brothers to work there with him. While they're at this particular hospital, they are just in a time period where electroshock therapy is the norm mm-hmm. for certain patients, right? Mm-hmm. They probably performed thousands of electroshock, ther- electroshock therapy on psych patients, mm-hmm. but the brothers found electroshock therapy to be unbearably inhumane, so they worked together to find a different solution to help people with mental illness. Hmm. What they eventually come to believe is that mental illness is a result of a chemical imbalance in the brain. Mm. And if there's a chemical imbalance, then the solution is probably also chemical. Mm. And that's truly the start of Purdue Pharma. The brothers buy a small pharma company in 1952, which was then called Purdue Frederick Company in New York. Mm-hmm. It started off not as so shiny as you might think. They just sold like tonics and solutions. They sold earwax remover, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. While on the side, they continued their initial passion of trying to find a solution to mental illness in a pill form. At around the same time, Arthur buys out a medical advertising company called McAdams. And this was sort of the first for the medical industry. Think of the time that we're in. They're in 1952, probably 1955 at this mm-hmm. time. This is around the Mad Men timeline of, or perhaps just before. I was just going to say, I was like, Mad yep. Men. <laughs> Mad Men, where ads were huge. Right. Yet still slightly novel mm-hmm. for a marketing strategy to entice people into buying your product. Mm-hmm. But no one really thought of translating this idea to the medical world. The Slayer Brothers were truly the ones to spearhead that. This completely changed the way that we sell drugs, even to this day. They were quite literally bringing Madison Avenue to medicine. But the problem is that there's a fine line between promotion and then fraud. To be fair, none of this was technically Mm -hmm. outlined as illegal back then, but it also totally is (laughs) illegal. Arthur Sackler's promotional techniques were to use doctors to promote their product to their own patient population which is fine. You know, we even do that to this day. Mm -hmm. He even hired someone in the FDA to promote their drugs. One of their early ads for a drug featured the drug name 
And then underneath were several business cards from doctors all across the U.S., from the West Coast, Midwest, Mm. East Coast, implying that these doctors across the country stand by this product. An investigative Mm. journalist at that time thought, you know, this is interesting. I've never seen this before, this kind of ad. So he decides to send a letter to each of these doctors at their business card address. None of these doctors or addresses existed. Interesting. Yes. (laughs) So, so, I mean, uh, I'm going to ask a silly Mm. question. But I never lived in the mid fifties <laughs> slash early sixties. So how does I know what? I know I look so young. <laughs> anyway, when someone sends an inquiry like that to these addresses that are totally fictional, how do they find out that these people do not exist if they don't get a response back? That's a great I just don't know. That's how a great it question. Works. <laughs> I and I'm totally spitballing here. I I don't know. But I, mm-hmm. the way I imagine mm-hmm. it, it's like as if you send when you send an email to an address that doesn't exist, you get a bounce back, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this this address doesn't gotcha. exist. I imagine the same would happen through good old snail mail, where you go to send an address, mm-hmm. and the, the mail people or the mail person's like, I can't send this to anybody. Like this is not a real address, and they'll right. be like, Sorry, sir, sorry, ma'am. Like I can't deliver this. Get a different address. Right. So that's what I imagine happened yeah. and how he came to know. You know what? You're probably absolutely right. I feel like that actually happened to me. I sent it to I sent something to the wrong address, but it did not get back to me for like a really? long time. Like that bounce back mm. is slow. And I was like, by the time, yeah, I was like, I was like, by the time I was supposed to get to this person, it's like way overdue, yeah. whatever it was, or like they, whoever was waiting for this letter was waiting for a long Dude, time. That's it. Was it like a year? You think? Yeah like up to that kind of time wait wait what like, what do you mean the bounce back Sorry. did it take almost a year to get it back to you no it took like three okay. months That's which a is time. a long time yeah, yeah for yeah, sure yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah okay so anyway the whole point being like <laughs> he's putting doctors and fake business cards on his ad for his drug we look to doctors as this beacon of health and trust but this puts that whole idea on shaky ground at the thought of doctors being easily conned or perhaps willingly participating or even worse, being completely invented in the promotion of a drug. Mm. In the 1960s, Purdue heavily marketed their drugs, their, marketed their products, Librium, which is no longer on the market, and Valium for everyday anxiety. Mm. I'm excited to pull some pictures from this. I, I mean, their ads are still mm-hmm. up on Google, but I got to say their marketing is quite good. They're they're taglines mm. are pretty good but for the wrong reasons they had uh don draper on their team yeah, that's dude, why they, they sure did <laughs> i love me some john ham even back then purdue had a hard spotlight shine on them and were accused of getting people addicted to valium arthur sackler mm. was firm that their drug was not to blame and the user was to blame the patient was using mm. the drug recklessly hmm Arthur Sackler dies at 73 years old in 1987. He dies before OxyContin, like even talks of OxyContin even began. But mm-hmm. he absolutely laid the foundation and the environment that led to the creation of OxyContin, as you can see. So so he's like the key brother out of the brothers that created this industry mm-hmm. Or, this particular okay, pharma company, it. yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, so it wasn't Mortimer or Raymond. No, no, no. Whose names I absolutely adore. Those names stood out to me. So I was like, I will remember those names. Um, I just I okay. just love Mortimer <laughs> because I think of Mort from Bob's Burgers. 
who's a oh, freaking yeah, yeah. mortician. Oh, it's so perfect. <laughs> I know. I love it. So great. Uh, good old Bob's Burgers <laughs> I puns. Know. And to, to answer your question, Megan, I think the mm. vibe that I got from all the sources I've looked at is Arthur, he was the eldest brother of the three, and he really got just it. like took the lead. Even for the the mental asylum job that he got as a doctor he got the job first and then he basically used his connections to get his two other brothers hired on at the same hospital with him so he was kind of always Mm. looking after his brother and the one that had a little more initiative than the rest got it okay so Purdue's first big hit on the market in terms of opioids was a drug called ms contin the ms stands for morphine sulfate and contin is short for continuous this was the first time the term contin was coined, which tells you that it's an extended release drug, i.e. the drug's effects mm. last longer in your body than an immediate release or an IR drug. Mm. And I know it's a lot of jargon, but essentially what you need to know is pretty much every drug you've ever taken, whether that's over the counter or prescription, is considered an immediate release drug. Mm. If it's extended release or delayed release, there's a lot of different ways you can say it. It has to mention it in the drug title. So it will tell you whether Mm. or not it's extended release or not. And is that uh, a contemporary requirement as a result of what had happened with the Purdue family and Oxycontin? I don't. Or is that something that was already in place when they were putting out this MS Cotton? That's a so I I know that they coined the term Cotton, but there are other ways to mm-hmm. describe it in other drugs that are not opioids. So for example, you can have Toprol, which is a metoprolol XL or ER. It will just say mm-hmm. like the drug name, and then it will say XL or ER or DR, ER for extended release, DR for delayed release. That kind of thing, right? So it will always say at the end, and it will have another like abbreviation that tells you whether this is long acting or not. And if it doesn't Mm, have that extended abbreviation, you can safely assume it is an immediate release drug. Got it. Okay. And essentially, the whole point of having a delayed release drug is so that you don't have to take it so many times a day. Usually, if it's a delayed Mm -hmm. release, that means you have the opportunity to take it just once a day or maybe twice a day for a drug that usually for an opioid, you would have to take every four to six hours. So in this Mm -hmm. scenario for MS Contin, you only have to take it twice daily, which is great for a person Mm -hmm. who maybe is not great at taking pills. So like I said already, the difference between an IR drug versus an ER drug or a controlled release drug is that ER has almost like a coating around it that allows the pill to move through the acidic environment of your stomach without breaking down. So then the drug mm. is free to slowly release over time, release the active ingredient of the drug into your bloodstream over time, and often with more potency, since the active components didn't waste time being broken down into your stomach where it doesn't have much effect. Hmm. So technically, this is a pretty innovative piece of medical technology, which, again, changed the drug landscape forever. So when you file a a new drug application with the FDA and it gets approved, just like with any invention, you will patent it. You'll patent the Mm -hmm. ingredients. But a patent does expire over time. And Purdue Pharma were acutely aware that the patent on their blockbuster drug, MS Content, was about to run out. Mm. When a drug company holds a patent... That means no other company is allowed to reproduce that drug. They probably couldn't even do it. They couldn't, probably couldn't even reproduce it if, even if they wanted to. Because essentially the patent, like I said, is the ingredient list of how to make the drug. 
when that patent expires, the company is legally required to release that particular information. And that's when the drug manufacturers are able to reproduce the drug in the generic form, i.e. unbranded, mm. which is which is a great question a lot of people ask, like, is should I get brand or generic? There's no difference. It's, it's the same thing. Right. In fact, generic right. is cheaper. So generic's better. There is a difference. Yeah, I guess there is a difference. There's a price difference, which I think is probably the biggest thing that matters Price difference, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the Sackler family get to thinking, what can we make to replace MS Contin? This discussion starts to zero in on oxycodone, another drug that they produce. Oxycodone is an extremely potent synthetic opioid-like fentanyl, way more potent than morphine. And of course, they knew it was quite addictive, they think, why don't we use the content system on Oxy? Oxy is way more potent than morphine, so you won't have to use a big dose. And on top of that, it'll be a content mechanism. So the drug will really slow in the body over the course of 12 hours. So thus, OxyContin was born, the drug that would cause the opioid epidemic. No doubt that the entire Sackler family was invested in OxyContin because another blockbuster drug. But the person who was really invested was Richard Sackler, who is Raymond Sackler's son, who is also a doctor. Hmm. So now he's kind of okay. pushing through. It switched. Yeah, switch. yeah, yeah. Switched to the nephew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> it, okay, so kind of referencing back to Dopesick, Richard Sackler mm. is heavily featured in Dopesick. He is basically the main person, the Sackler family, that you kind of follow around in the story. Mm. Okay. And it's sort of like the Sackler story is told through the perspective of him, I would say. And he's okay. incredibly fixated on the success of OxyCon to the point of obsession. Mm. I, I mean, I looked at pictures of him in real life, but at least in Dope Sick, yeah. the way that he's portrayed, he's like this dark, broody, like Joaquin Phoenix type. Like he looks like Joaquin Phoenix, who has mm. like this slightly okay. freaky, high pitched voice that he always talks in like a hushed whisper. <laughs> yeah. Is that is that representative of the real Richard Sackler? Yes. Did you? I haven't seen interviews of the real Richard Sackler, so yeah, I don't so know how in, he speaks. In Crime of a Century, they have mm-hmm. legal interviews of like him giving like a deposition uh, on yeah. the screen, so you can kind of see what he looks like, how he talks, and he does like have a higher pitch of voice, and he's like always talks in like a soft hush voice. He talks very slowly. Yeah, it's a little, but definitely yeah. in Dope's like they turn it up a notch, of course, for TV. Yeah, it's definitely right. like a right. little bit unnerving to watch him, but. I don't know if gotcha. he's really like that. What's your... Okay, okay. Well, you just said you don't know. I was going to say, I mean, you know more on this topic mm. than I do. That's why you're doing the story. But I was going to ask your opinion on, like, what's your opinion on him as a person, like, his his motives? Oh. So in the show, they clearly... They show him as someone who's extremely fixated on making Oxycontin mm-hmm. a success. But, like, is it does it, does it play out, like, how... A, a show uh, like would would have a, a character right. arc or development where like maybe he's fixated on Oxycontin first because he just really wants the, um, success for his family, but also really he truly believes sure. in this drug as something that could be world changing. Sure. Or is it like based on real interviews or what you've learned of, about him? Do you think that he always kind of knew what was going to happen with Oxycontin, and was it all a money grab like was it all just motivated by we're gonna just make so much off of this product this drug product definitely the latter one one thousand percent okay 
just look at what I just name dropped in the beginning in terms of like mm-hmm. their art. There were huge art collectors and donators mm-hmm. to the arts. And that was like them, you know, I'm sure it was a bunch of write-offs for them, but that was their way of like giving mm-hmm. back to the community and refocusing their wealth or whatever. But in the series, at least, and from what I've seen in the documentary interviews of him, he does not give a fuck. Even to this mm. day, he does not admit his his grandfather, not his grandfather, but I guess his grand uncle or his uncle's thought process of, look, it's not us. We didn't do anything wrong. It's the mm. it's the addicts. Consumer. Addicts is the consumers. Yeah. They're addicts. It's not our fault. There's mm. no admission of guilt or remorse or even just like self awareness to that extent. It, I'm sure, but the thing is, they know. They know it's addictive, mm. but they just will right. die on their sword defending it to the day they die how fascinating yeah, uh, yeah. they're definitely motivated by okay money, bottom line yeah I, i'm sure you'll get into the uh the emails and stuff that i i, I feel like i know there's like correspondence that was uh hidden but then mm-hmm. ousted actually I, I think i watched the hbo the crime of Century? special yeah yeah, I'm pretty sure I watched bits and pieces, but it was one of those times I was watching yeah. it, but then I was also cooking, right. and I was like, oh, "What okay. a show!" To the watch uh, the crime <laughs> is is Crime of the Century the one where there's the former employee who who writes a poem about how horrible um, this this drug and family is. Maybe if if you know that happened, about? <laughs> I don't know if it was a poem. I mean, that is poetic, but I don't know if I've gotten to that point yet because I did stop. Okay. I'm like, I'm going to watch this in parts to correspond with the three parts. Gotcha. So I haven't gotten there gotcha. yet if, that's, if that happens. Okay. If, if, it, if it is the same thing, let me know when you get to the guy who writes a poem. Actually, it's, it's right at the end. Now that okay. I think about it, he reads a poem right at the end. And it's like, oh, man, he has so much hate for this family. <laughs> okay. Anyway, continue. Sorry. That was a total uh, deviation. No, but it's something I can look forward story. to. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> all right yeah so that's richard sackler he he features prominently in both dosek and crime of century so going back to mm-hmm. the drug as i as we know now morphine is derived from the natural opium poppy oxy fentanyl mm-hmm. etc they're all synthetic so there's truly no mm-hmm. limit technically speaking to how potent you can make them their reward mm. system is high and essentially works like heroin but in pill form but that's not to say that opioids should never be prescribed. They absolutely have a medical use, such as for cancer pain, mm-hmm. end of life, after a major surgery, but just for a few days. Mm-hmm. I will say, and I'll share, I guess, not my personal anecdote, but Dave's. Megan, I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. that Dave got a, he got his ACL surgery on his knee mm-hmm. back in, mm-hmm. I think it was like two or three years ago. So he got it done at UCSD. And this is a, for those who don't know, an ACL surgery is a quick surgery. Like it's an outpatient surgery. Mm. Like you're in and out within an hour. They kick you out wow. home. That's it. Didn't know yeah, that. It, it took the that. whole thing from like start to finish. Maybe like even like the prepping and then actual doing the surgery and then after prepping. Maybe took uh, an hour and a half max. Wow, yeah. that is short. I was I was expecting you to say like no, five dude. hours, and then he was out. Yeah, I was asking Dave wow. at the time, like, who did the surgery? She was this female surgeon. I think she pumps out like sixty a day, something something nuts. Wow. And that I remember, <laughs> I remember when I went in to see him before surgery, they wrote like an arrow on the knee to be like this knee. <laughs> 
it's important. It's important. I can, I'm sure that gets mixed up <laughs> many times. So scary. Yeah. Yeah. I'm absolutely. sure. So that's just a fun tidbit. But anyways, the point of that being, yeah. he said that the drugs that they gave him after I don't really remember this. They gave him Oxy, Oxycontin. Mm. Mm-hmm. How did, how did he feel about being prescribed that? Did he enjoy his time? Which I'm not trying to say that to like I, take away from yeah what i know this story is horrible because it's about it's about addiction but like what Mm -hmm. was his experience as as knowing that dave is someone who for patients who go through surgery and then have an opportunity that sounds bad but an opportunity to see what it's actually like to take these drugs like what was his experience i i did Did you ask him i don't think he he was like yeah it it took away his pain. It was, it, his pain was definitely mm-hmm. removed and adequately controlled, but he actually stopped taking them mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Like he only took it for like a day and a half, maybe two days max. And then he stopped it because the constipation yeah. was so bad. And that's not me like trying to out David. Uh, because the yeah, yeah. biggest side effect of it, you know, among others is constipation. And right. people don't realize right. like, it sucks being constipated. Like it's really, yeah, yeah. really bad. Yeah. So it it got so bad yeah. to the point where I was like, I can't even take this anymore. Like I'd rather be in pain than be constipated. So that right. was like the trade off yeah. for him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I, I only ask because you know, when uh, they show opioid use in mm-hmm. entertainment, there's always kind of like this, it's yeah. like euphoria, right? It's this euphoria, yeah. uh, like literally the show and mm-hmm. the actual emotion is always expressed on the user's, you know, um, face or whatever. And like, that's the implication as to why it's addictive. And in many ways that is true, but it's, you know, using Dave as, a, as an example of someone who has no history of right. addiction, it's like did did he also experience that and or or would that be like almost like a psychological effect of like oh because entertainment displays it as this way when i take this drug as i'm healing from this acl surgery that's also what i yeah. got or was he just like oh just you know it, i didn't actually get this euphoria moment it was just more like the pain was dulled no, totally. you know what i mean that's no, that's totally. what i was trying to get I, at i can yeah. answer on both parts because what i will say is that the drugs he were he was given to put him to sleep, there was like an anesthetic, but mm-hmm. there was also something to help with the pain even while he was sleeping because, you know, they're me cutting and this and that. Mm-hmm. He said that felt really great. He was like, I felt super mm-hmm. buzzed. Like I had like the best buzz of my life and I was just like sleepy and happy mm-hmm. and like cozy. <laughs> he was like, he's like, that was mm-hmm. the experience yeah, he yeah. had before being put to sleep for the surgery. I don't know if he had the same experience with the oxy, like after post-surgery. I think it was more like just to take the edge for the pain. Um, right. I don't know if he right. got there to the point where he like felt like a high. Right, mm-hmm. right. So in 1994, Purdue Pharma applied to the FDA for their new drug, OxyContin. The language in that application indicated that this drug would not just be for cancer pain, which is what all opioids at the time were only indicated. They're only for patients with cancer and who had cancer pain. So they were strong Mm. in their language at this point, saying that this drug would not just be for cancer pain, like how they did in the past, but for a much wider audience. And the terminology that they use in their application was chronic pain patients. The wording of that is so Mm. generic and so vague on purpose that it was a fantastic cushion for Purdue Pharma to land on in the event of any legal battles against them. Mm. If Purdue Pharma had said that OxyContin was going to be a drug indicated just for patients with cancer pain, 
I guarantee you that that we would not be having this episode today. Probably would not be having this episode today. Mm. But Purdue wasn't interested mm. in that. The population of patients who have cancer pain is very limited, first of all, and they won't be on it mm. for very long. Mm-hmm. And that sounds horrible to say, but if patients right. who are experiencing a ton of pain who have cancer, that usually means that they are terminal or at stage three or four. So mm. they're just not expected to live that long. So the likelihood of them being on mm. it long term as chronic cancer as chronic pain patients is very small. Right. Purdue was keen on expanding the scope of their drug to any patients with quote unquote pain. That goes for a young kid who's in the hospital for a knee surgery like Dave. A big mm. aspect to any FDA application is not only proving that your drug works, but that it's also safe. Since Purdue knew that they were going to open up their opioids to the general public for the first time, they wanted to heavily pad that harsh landing by saying OxyContin was incredibly safe, and here's the kicker, non-addictive. Mm-hmm. From my understanding, right. when you file a new drug application or an NDA with the FDA, you don't necessarily have to have all your ducks in a row in terms of data. I believe it's the way that I look at it, an NDA is more of like a blueprint of what you plan and hope to achieve with your clinical trials. It's almost like an IOU, if you will, mm. which the company will later fulfill by way of a phase one, two, and three trial to back up their initial claims in their NDA. Because here's the damn thing. Purdue had zero evidence of any safety data. So going back to the Dope Sick series, mm. one of the most mind-blowing parts of the show to me was that the FDA actually approved the language that stated OxyContin was non-addictive one, and less than 1% of patients in the trial, et cetera, became addicted to OxyContin. Less than 1% addicted to an opioid. Mm. This is just like any other opioid. And of course, right. we know like the FDA goes through a rigorous process. Like They are looking at things in excruciating detail to make sure, even more so obviously today, but this was just for everyone's knowledge. The timing of this is 1998, when they're pushing out mm. this NDA to the FDA. Or sorry, 1995. And then actually gets approved okay. in 1998. This still, gotcha. That yes. is very recent. I know that's, I could do math. 30? No, I'm not even 30. What am I talking about? I was born in 1994. <laughs> I can do math. 27 years ago. <laughs> 26. 26 years ago. But so I think 26 years ago is still very recent. But my question is, okay, so 1995 is when they applied. FDA approves them Mm -hmm. in 1998, which, you know, it's three years time, which I think kind of, uh, you know, stays consistent with the FDA having like a rigorous Mm -hmm. uh, investigation or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, looking through the application and ensuring everything's right. That said, (laughs) conspiracy theory stuff, you know, like I'm like, were any of the FDA folks... Oh. in cahoots oh. with the Sackler family. You That's stuff that I don't know. Right I, I didn't mouth. pay attention when I was I'll tell it. you right now. I'll oh, okay. tell you okay. right now. Yeah, okay. yeah, tell me, tell so, me. So yes, the language is non-addictive. Their golden tagline that all of their salespeople used in the force or in the field after this was less than 1% of patients in the trial became addicted to OxyContin. And this shocked me because it mm. is clearly so not true. And I guarantee you that they had no data to back that claim. So in my mind, I'm like, I don't mm. understand how the FDA would agree to approving that language in the package insert. And this is something that's also heavily featured in DopeSick. Here's how Purdue Got did it. it. They hire an FDA medical reviewer named Curtis Wright in October of 1995. 
or do executives mm. work with Wright day and night for three days to help them draft a medical review that Wright promised would get approved? And so it did because Wright himself approved OxyContin mm. for public use. So Wright pretty much wrote it That's and then approved I'm like, it. This man... <laughs> What's in it for him? He wrote it. He emailed it to himself and was like, wow, that's great stuff and approved it. It's like grading your own goddamn homework. I I was just going to say, I was just going to say you took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) But yeah, what's in it for him? Follow Uh, up. I know you're asking the right questions. You're giving me all the good transitions. (laughs) So what's in it for him? Let me tell you. So after Oxy got approved, (laughs) Curtis Wright conveniently leaves the FDA and gets hired by Purdue Pharma. In Wright's first year at Purdue, his mm, compensation okay. was $370,000. And this is in 1996. That's a lot of moolah. Mm, shmoney. That is right. I was, I was trying to think shmoney, but then I thought moolah. Some of the... <laughs> oh, it's, it's some so of the cool. language Wright approved <laughs> stated that Oxy is non-addictive in low doses. Oxy has shown to reduce abuse potential. That is, that's another tagline. Oxy has shown to reduce mm. abuse potential. Wow. So it's an action. Yep. It's an actual yep. verb. Wow. Yeah, dude, that that's is ballsy. what I'm saying. I'm like, and this is all coming from Richard Sackler. Like he is pushing, he's grinding the entire company to work day and night. But like, you need to make this happen. This has to be the drug of the century. Mm. I want every, I want this drug in every household. Like that is his goal. Right. I kind of I'm going back to when they hired Wright mm-hmm. in the first place. I mean, that sounds weird to me, but again, I don't know anything about how uh these things work between the FDA and pharmaceutical companies. But is that oh. a shady practice to oh actually hire someone from the FDA? Yeah. I'm assuming yes, because well, well, it's, to, to me, I'm like it's shady because he wrote it and then approved it. Conflict of interest, I get that, but I'm also like the hi- the hiring in and of itself that is no, not no, typical no, practice. No, no, no. Is that you correct? Can, that is that's okay. like bribing and like, I mean, it's almost like okay, okay, buying a perfect SAT score or an LSAT score or whatever it is on the exam, you know. Gotcha. Absolutely not. God. What you can do, which I know pharmaceutical companies have done, is they can work with the FDA reviewers to just be like, okay, let's just mm-hmm. say you did an application, it gets denied. You can work with them to be like, what can mm-hmm. we do to make our application better? Why did you deny it? And kind of go right. through it bullet by bullet right. as like a very transparent, open communication t- as a team. That definitely happens. Right. But this, like you're basically paying someone to write you the perfect application. That is not legal. Right. What is the... It is not. Okay. Uh, I was going to say, do you have... um, Do you know what the legal ramifications are if if it was to be found out that uh, an FDA agent was uh, paid off to approve a drug product? 1,000%. What what I'm not clear on is if in 1995, if that was clearly laid out. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there's always reasons Mm. why laws are in place because someone did some shit and they're like, okay, now we need to have a law about it. I don't know if it was like precursor to something like that happening, but no one got jail time as far as I'm aware so far. Maybe I'll learn that later on. But yeah, so he was definitely paid off. Okay, He gets hired on and the, the not the FDA, the DEA definitely investigates that. They're like, this is clearly shady. Like, mm. why did no one pick up on this? You right. Know? Right. 
what are the chances that this same man who approved this drug product ended up leaving the FDA shortly after to Absolutely. work for the same actually, company? This is a great point that you just bring up. In Crime of the Century, part of the deposition that they focus on is asking Richard Sackler, like, mm. Curtis Wright, like, you guys clearly compensated him and bribed him into writing a perfect mm. and, like application for you guys because he came to work for you right afterwards. Right. And he literally, Richard Sackler literally goes, it's like, um, no, like, I don't. I don't recall that he worked for us immediately after. I think it had to be at least eight months. That's uh, still like in the grand scheme of things, yeah, a short it, amount it, of time. But, the, but it's less than a year's it's time. Just like, he has that kind of answer to every question. You know, he's just that kind right. of person. He's like, right. he just will not admit, not admit. Right. To have that language approved in an FDA package insert, and I think maybe majority of us know what a package insert is. It's it's a thing that comes with every drug you get from your pharmacy. It's just like a little paper. It tells you everything about the drug. To have that language FDA approved in your package insert is huge because your sales reps can now go in and reference the PI that was approved by a government agency, which says that your drug is essentially non-addictive, is delayed absorption, and is believed to reduce abuse potential. Like Purdue Pharma believes this. Just and like I said, there's mm. no data. They Purdue just believes it. Nothing to back it up. Right. Just like how I believe. Wow. Rihanna will come out with a new album. It's called Wishful Thinking. People. Wishful Thinking. <laughs> okay. Uh, as much as we put blame on Purdue Pharma, which we should, we absolutely should. This was also historic mm. oversight by the FDA. All of the U.S. was and mm. is affected by the opioid crisis that started with Oxy. I know we said like it happens before, but I think the ones that we're like mm-hmm. most affected by right. right now is our generation is Oxy. But there were certain right. parts of the United States right. that were hit deep in the community, such as the Rust mm-hmm. Belt towns in the Appalachian states, such as West Virginia. West Virginia mm. really, really got hit. And again, referencing Dope yeah. Sick, all of Dope Sick takes place in a small mining town in west virginia right okay this may be the guy who does the poem uh (laughs) he's a man named mark ross who grew up in wise county virginia he gets a chemistry bio degree and was going to be a teacher but he instead gets hired at purdue pharma in sales for oxycontin this guy is very homegrown he's very sweet man and you know like i don't know he just grew up very small town so Essentially, his manager, who was Mark Radcliffe, who ends up being like a big player in the whole Purdue trials, Mark entices the other Mark, Mark Ross, by saying there would be an uncapped bonus if you join the sales team at Purdue Pharma. And to Mark Ross's mind, he's like, uncapped Mm. bonus? Like, I'm there. I'll I'll say whatever, right? I think this is the guy who does the poem. I don't know. I really like him. Yeah. He's, he's, Yeah. He's honestly so brilliant. The sales team at Purdue Pharma would bank in $40 million a year in bonuses alone and $1 billion in sales otherwise. In Mark Ross's first year, right. and this is just, I think he just get yeah, he just has a bachelor's degree. He has no other higher education. He gets hired on his first job. In Mark Ross's mm-hmm. first year, he makes $170,000, which is $293,000 in today's money. And in his last year, he makes $300,000, right. which is $517,000 in today's money. I, with just a, and wow. I, this is like not say like a degree or anything, but I'm like, if you're going into a sales rep position that is 
about drugs and medicine like he just learned all that stuff on the job like he didn't even need to go into higher trade school to learn that he's making good ass money and coming from his community he's also not putting his life at risk you know working at a mine and getting paid actually such a small amount he kind of talks about his backstory maybe you remember Mm -hmm. this megan he talks about his backstory where he comes from like you know, a big family of maybe five, six brothers and sisters. And his parents are coal mining people. Mm -hmm. His dad worked the mines. His older brothers worked the mines. And when he was growing up and got to that age, he was like, dad, I want to work the mines just like you. And his dad was like, no, you, well, he said like, Mm -hmm. you're too, um, what's it called? Clumsy. He's like, you're too clumsy to work the mines. You got to go to school. (laughs) So he, that's the only reason why he goes to college. (laughs) Yeah. Gotta go. Gotta get a degree. So <laughs> yeah. he goes, and that's the only reason yeah. he got spared right. the whole mining vocation, and he get, ends up in this situation. Right. So it's one hundred percent true. You know, when right. you grow up in those towns, there's pretty much one way of life and one way of living and putting money on the table. Right. The famous, yeah. the famous ad at the time it's for crazy. Oxy that circulated was the quote i got my life back commercial where patients probably actors talked about Mm. how much a wonder drug oxy is and how it gave them their life back but what was key was they talked about their dosages 1200 milligrams a day which made doctors Mm. draw drop because they were like that kind of dosage is extremely high for an opioid and for context today even back then, if I'm remembering correctly, but today you would start out with around five milligrams for hydrocodone or oxycodone and then go up to a max dose of 40 milligrams. And they're talking about 1200 milligrams a day. That is just wild. And even on top of that, they're like, you could go higher. Crazy. There's no, li- they kept, that was their, that was their jar. There's no, oh my limit. God. there's no limit. Just keep going. Like, why do you want right. your patients to suffer? Whew. Yeah. So Mark Ross talks about how they would tell their doctors, like I said, there's no max dose, there's no limit for a pure opioid that isn't combined with a Tylenol or acetaminophen. Because, again, for context, a lot of these drugs are combined with Tylenol. Like you'll see, it says, you know, hydrocodone, mm. Norco or hydrocodone five slash three twenty five. The five milligrams is the hydrocodone. The three twenty five is the Tylenol. So they were basically saying this is a pure quote unquote mm. opioid. There's nothing attached to this. There's no combo in it. So you can really up the dose no matter how high you want because there is no Tylenol, which is it doesn't make any sense. That's not the reason. Mm. So Purdue right. was known for buying doctors right. and having them speak high praise of their drug at medical conferences, ad boards, etc. One of these doctors who was pretty notorious was Dr. Lynn Webster. He was essentially the face of Purdue Pharma on the healthcare mm. pr- practitioner side. Essentially, like, he is a doctor, so people are going to listen to him, and he's like, yes, like, Oxy is fantastic. You must use it in your practice. He touted the use of opioids, especially Oxy in patients, and he, he was so controversial in his beliefs about addiction and pain. He pretty much got paid by every pharma company, there really isn't anyone he wouldn't work for. Purdue Farm was right. absolutely killing it with their medical advertising. It's honestly a little bit astounding how much impact they made. They started to create videos and a training course on pain that they somehow were able to make a requirement for certain healthcare providers, especially ones who may prescribe an opioid like theirs. In these training videos, they saw how 
They say how pain should be screened and treated as one of the vital signs. So when you go to the doctor, your tech or your nurse will take your blood pressure, they measure your height, your weight, check your reflexes maybe, listen to your heart, listen to your lungs and your heart rate. What they also want you to do now is to show each patient the Wong-Baker pain scale to assess if the patient has any pain. And the Wong-Baker scale is just basically a bunch of faces that be like, I'm really happy or I'm really like in pain. It's just a very simple pain scale. And if they do have pain, how can you address the pain with opioids? These training videos say, and I quote, doctors need to get over their opioid prescribing phobia. No dose is too high and patients can't get addicted. Less than 1% of patients become addicted to opioids. What they're really saying is oxy. Right. There was definitely, and this is coming from a psychiatrist who was working in like the early 2000s. She was saying like there was definitely an air of if you're a doctor and you don't prescribe your patient opioids who is in pain, then you're a bad doctor. It means you want your patients to suffer. Mm. there's a lot of almost like peer pressure to be like, you're not prescribing opioids. I do. And my patients are doing great. You know, that's what always has fascinated me about the relationship between these brand, big brand pharmaceuticals with the culture amongst Mm -hmm. healthcare workers. Um, Even like, okay, I'm not trying to be controversial here or anything, but it's like, I'll use a a flip flop of an example, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. ivermectin right now, right? There's definitely a culture amongst healthcare workers to be very, very careful with prescribing ivermectin from doctors uh, writing a prescription for it or pharmacies selling it. Um, But that's like, I feel like it's the same thing just in terms of, well, I guess in the Oxycontin sense, it's like the pharmaceutical Absolutely. company creating the culture within the healthcare world. But it's, it is kind of like, yeah, you see these trends um, in medicine of just like how everyone kind of feels about a particular drug. Right. Either it's really, really popular, like right. this is the hot thing, like this is life changing. And then mm-hmm. and it's believed, if, especially if people are lied to, or it's like, um, we got to be really careful yeah. with this because it could be abused in Absolutely. ways that it shouldn't be. Like sometimes the patients move the dial and trend something. Sometimes it's the pharma company that moves the dial. Sometimes it's the physicians. It, it's just it just kind of moves around like that. But you you're totally right. I again, like I said, none of this was true. These poor patients were addicted and doctors were concerned and they would reach out to their local district sales rep and be like, what the hell is going on? My patient is addicted and going through withdrawal. You said this is non-addictive. So then Purdue goes back to the drawing board and they found a single case study that discussed this term called pseudo addiction. Pseudo addiction is when a patient looks like they're going through withdrawal when actually they're simply just pursuing pain relief. This terminology, this is not a real thing. This this has no data to back it up. It's, it's totally made up. This terminology played perfectly into Purdue's vision. So they sought out this doctor who wrote the case study, who is Dr. David Haddix. Dr. Haddix is quickly hired by Purdue Hmm. and he becomes a lead spokesperson for the company. He spreads his gospel far and wide about pseudo addiction. No science or data back up his message ever. I wonder how much of that is him being influenced by a very generous payout versus 
part of it's the payout, but also, you know, maybe this is a doctor who, you know, who, who put together this one research paper and actually has a passion and truly believes in his work, even though like to the rest of the community, it's like this, this doesn't exist, but you know how like some, I can see like some person being so totally like, this is truly what I believe. And I put all my work into this and I'm going to fight till the day I die that this is real. So part of me is like, I, I'm not, I, I'm curious to know is like, is it just like, fuck it. I, I can make some big money pushing this that I don't actually really believe in. Or like, I do really believe in this and the money's a bonus, but like, cool. I get an opportunity to like bit of push both. this like, thing. So it's, the, uh, this is gonna sound like a harsh comparison but it's kind of like the doctors or mm. m- people in healthcare mm. that believe in like eugenics you know what i mean like it's so messed up like mm. what he believes but mm-hmm. he actually believes it like he he's so passionate about it but it's like dude that's where's right. your data okay that's fine if you believe it but where have you seen this before because he just thinks like he just thinks like okay people are not addicted they're just seeking out pain relief i'm like yes in a sense they are but you're not helping his his rationale Mm -hmm. and solution is to give them more opioids i'm like you're not helping them you're killing them you know and he firmly does not believe that way and in the deposition they talked to him about this they're like okay you said Mm -hmm. there's no limit to prescribing opioids or giving people opioids because it's all about seeking out pain relief the addiction is not real is essentially what he's saying he does not believe in addiction period and he's like, yeah, there's no such mm. thing as addiction. Um, they just right. need more pain relief. Like wow. they get a certain tolerance and they just need more. And the person on the other side, you don't see her face, but she basically is mm. like, yeah, like you can remove someone's pain, but then what if they're dead? That's another way. They don't feel pain when they're dead. Is that what you're trying to spread mm. as gospel? And he's right. like, obviously that's an extreme situation, but technically, right. yes, that would remove their pain. That's so wild. Right. Like- when someone is just so convinced of their I know. own like, shit. I don't know if that's <laughs> like, ego or they're truly so a believer. I just don't know. It's hard to tell. Ay, ay, ay. Right. Well, buckle up because this next one is a, a, a personal, not a personal anecdote, sorry. It's an anecdote that is sad okay. and just very Gotcha, right, gotcha. Okay. So this anecdote is about a couple, okay. Roy okay. and Carol Bosley. So they're an older couple. Roy Bosley was a pediatric psychiatrist. He actually was in the Latter-day Saints. He was a Mormon living in Salt Lake City. He was on a mission, comes back, and then becomes a pediatric psychiatrist. Mm. At a certain hospital, I think it's the Latter-day Saints hospital, he Mm. meets his wife, Carol, who is a nurse in Salt Lake City, Utah. When Roy and Carol get pregnant with their first child, the due date has passed for Carol. And Carol goes to her husband, Roy. She's like, all right, Roy, go get your father's boat. It's time to get this going. So they go out on the boat. She does a few laps doing like doing mm. the water skiing. And then she's like, all right, this baby's coming out. <laughs> and right, I think, right. hey, yeah, let me just jiggle it. There yeah, we go. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, jiggle it out of me a little bit. <laughs> she has an anecdote to be like, my wife yeah. is fearless. Like she's not afraid of anything, you know. Fast yeah. forward many years later, Carol right, right. and their eldest son, they're driving to Sam's Club when an 84-year-old woman, she runs a stoplight and mm. T-bones their car pretty badly. Carol is thrown into the windshield. Mm. Yeah. A neurosurgeon has to oh. rebuild her neck with a metal plate and screws. The pain, as you might imagine, mm. was tremendous. 
but it was being managed really well by Carol's primary mm-hmm. care physician. So then one day, a neighbor with mm-hmm. lower back issues comes up to Carol and tells her, you know, you should really go to Life Tree Pain Clinic. I think they could really help you. So she's like, okay, like, mm. I'll check it out. Life Tree Pain Clinic was run none other by Dr. Lynn Webster, who coins the term pseudo-addiction. Right. This is just a funny tidbit, tidbit right. but from uh, the interview, they interview him about this Life Tree Pain Clinic. The interview asked Dr. Webster, why did you name your clinic mm-hmm. Life Tree? And he chuckles, thinks for a moment, and then he says, well, I had to name it something. <laughs> Fuck. Right. It's it, there's no there's like no depth to him. <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, there's no like higher. Yeah, no no mm-hmm. depth. What's the word? There's no um. It's like there's no passion. There's no there's no totally. Um, yeah, it's like a facade. When someone is like, I have to right. I had to name it something, like so I chose something that sounded kind of optimistic. Like it's yeah. like. So Carol does go to Life Tree Clinic, and she's prescribed, of course, OxyContin. Now, Carol is already on fentanyl. She's on amitriptyline, waiting for her nerve pain, and she's on a hypnotic sleep aid. Roy recalls how after his wife sought help at Life Tree, her mannerisms and her behavior completely changed and not in a good way. Carol would take her oxy, and then she would immediately get confused and loopy. Then 45 minutes later, she would think, oh, I need to take my meds. Like she would totally forget that she had even taken her oxy and that she'll take another one. And it's just this loop. It's just this loop. And Roy said that there were many times where he would come home and find his wife unconscious in weird positions. Like, and he shows, there's photos. If you watch this, I'm sure Megan, you remember, there's photos of Carol just in, just totally just knocked Mm. out. One Mm -hmm. of the pictures, Mm -hmm. her head is in her laundry basket. Like Mm -hmm. it looks like she might've been doing her laundry just, knocked out like that is terrifying mm-hmm. right so roy began to take pictures of her right and he explains the only reason he took photos was so that he could show his wife because she would come out of the stupor and not even realize any of that happened and then roy would tell her and she wouldn't believe him so then he took photos just right. to show her like this is this is happening we need to mm-hmm. get help eventually roy and his son john mm-hmm. take care yeah. of the er after another event of her being unconscious the son, John, brings all of his mom's meds to the ER so that they could show the doctor. The doctor picks up each of her meds and says the same thing each time. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. He is shocked at mm. the combination and the dosage of mm. what she's taking. He's like, no freaking wonder. She, like, she's lucky she's not dead. Mm. So the doctor is mm-hmm. able, luckily, able to convince Carol mm-hmm. to join a program. Carol was able to get all of her medications, all of her patches. She is healthy. She is happy. She is involved in the community. And she was only on Tylenol as needed. Phenomenal. Amazing. Amazing. So then, mm-hmm. like a few months later, maybe six mm-hmm. months later, Roy remembers that one day Carol comes home and she says, Dr. Webster wants to meet with us to discuss my condition. And Roy goes, okay, like, sure, we can go. And Roy mm-hmm. says, Dr. Webster makes a statement that he will never mm-hmm. forget, a statement he is still baffled by. This is what Dr. Webster says in the meeting. He says, quote, 
a chronic pain sufferer cannot be an addict. Mm. I am her physician. I will prescribe the meds that I think she needs and she will be under my care and that will be the end of it. Dr. Webster gets Carol back on all of her meds. Immediately, Carol becomes dissociative again. She's confused. Mm. She's lethargic. But Dr. Webster refuses to listen to anyone in the family. Roy and his children, they plead with the clinic, try to get through to Webster. In Roy's words, he's never there minding the store. He would let his PAs dole out meds while he's out gallivanting across the country doing mm-hmm. speaking events and telling doctors to prescribe more oxy. And you better believe he's getting paid a pretty penny to do all of this. I don't know if that story gets wrapped up in any right. ways, but that's where that story leaves off. So I don't really know what happens to Carol. I don't know if, Megan, you remember, but... Oh, I can't remember. I think it, I think they might come back to it. I just haven't got there yeah. yet. That's one of those things where... Oh, gosh. I want to be really careful about how I say this because, uh, you know, I'm not... The intention is um, not to use victim-blaming language, mm. right? I guess I can speak from my perspective of... Like, I come from a family that barely ever used the doctor (laughs) ever (laughs) growing up. And so it's one of those things where, like, I almost feel like it's inherent in me that I'm like, even if a doctor, like, if a doctor suggested, like, they're, okay, it's not even inherent. This has actually happened. We would go in maybe once in a while to Mm. check in on something and one on one of our family members. So you pay your copay or whatever. And my mom's already irritated about that fucking copay. And then <laughs> she comes out and she's like, the doctor suggested this prescription and it's waiting for me downstairs if I choose to go get it. Mm, and right. it's that, it's that, you know, her mentality yeah. is like, I can fucking walk out this door and not pay oh, extra yeah. for whatever this medication is that I, True. I don't think I need. Like, and, and maybe in mm-hmm. this instance, it might've just been like a higher dosage of like ibuprofen, like uh whatever the term is for like mm-hmm. more intense ibuprofen. Um, so yeah. I just, I, I come from that experience of being like, we, it's not that we don't trust doctors. That's not it at all. It's just a yeah. financial aspect. And so we always totally. kind of like had that option within our family to be like, we don't, we can say no to this prescription. You know what I mean? And totally. so I'm, Absolutely. I'm so intrigued um, by this, this, family and their story and i can understand why it's scary to go against what a doctor is suggesting especially if a doctor is so mm-hmm. adamant to prescribe these things right, like right, no right. like she i know exactly what she needs because i have the credibility and the knowledge to know that this woman who has multiple plates in her neck needs to be on these drugs mm-hmm. so that can be very hard to go against uh, especially also coming from a traumatic accident like that but like i do wonder uh, and maybe they will touch on this later, but like if, if there was a point where they're just like, cause, cause they, she was clearly, you know, doing well after coming out of yeah. being taken off those drugs. But then yeah. the moment he kind of like put a little more pressure on them, it seemed like she, you know, they're back in the home and there was um, some sort of willingness to take it. That's why she ended up becoming dissociative again. But I'm just curious, mm-hmm. like uh, I am curious to know if they're just ultimately were like, we're not, we're not going to listen like it you know it like right we don't trust this i don't know totally no no i i 100 agree <laughs> agree and i laugh because i can't tell you how many times i've sat in a doctor's office and they're like okay i'm going to prescribe you some blood work and you can just 
this is Kaiser. Like, yeah. Everything's in-house, right? Yeah. So like, I'm going to prescribe you some blood work and you just need to go downstairs and they'll get you all set up. And I'll be like, okay, great. And then I'll just walk <laughs> Exactly. Like, ain't nobody sticking right, me with needles. Like, right. I am leaving. Right. I will take my goddamn chances. Right. That is such bad PR for us like, a know. healthcare professional, but I don't give a fuck. No, I've definitely <laughs> done that. Like, even for myself in my adult life, like... I can't remember what it was that was prescribed or but 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 it was one of those things where it was clearly more of a suggestion rather than a you need to be on this right now because whatever you have going on is not going to be cured without it. It was just like, you know, it was one of those things where I think, you know, the 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 healthcare professionals looking out for me and they're it's almost like they're kind of doing me a favor. They're like, okay, I think this might might make it easier for you, whatever you're going through. But it's not a necessity. Mm-hmm. And once I get that tone of, of it's not a necessity, I'm like, okay, fuck that. I'm not going to pay for anything yeah. I don't need. Yeah. 100%. I mean, to be fair to myself, <laughs> uh, every anything the doctor says, even if they're like, dude, you have to be on these drugs. I'm like, okay, so you're just suggesting that. Great. <laughs> suggestion. Yeah. Nothing is final. Yeah. But I mean, so go, getting back to Carol, because yeah. that is a great question. I had the same thought process. I'm like... I would have just been like, fuck you. Right. Like, I'm doing great without these. I'm not going back on all of that. Yeah. But <laughs> if you look at the, or if you listen to the documentary, mm. and there's a few sources as well that, that corroborate this. He literally says, and he believes this. Mm. He's like, I, he's like, I've had issues and had tension with, between my patient and the family because the family doesn't understand the way I practice. Mm. But the thing is, I have to tell my patients so that they get it through their heads. Like, if you do not take your meds, you will die. Mm. Like he, that's the way he phrases it Interesting. to them. So, you know, it, it would have to take someone. And, and the thing is, that's another thing. Like, I, I was telling the story to my mom mm. and she was like, and he was a pediatric psychiatrist, the husband, mm, you know, and mm-hmm. she's a nurse. You, mm-hmm. like, we have to remember, like, they're also healthcare professionals. Right, right. And the thing is, and my mom, because I took it the other way, I'm like, they should know, they should have known. Mm. But my mom was like, no, in fact, I think it's harder right. because they're healthcare professionals, because they trust each other. Right. They want to trust. He's a pain clinic special. He's a pain specialist. Right. Maybe they don't know, like, the latest and greatest. Yeah. He, they trust him to know his job and know what he's doing. So sometimes you don't question yeah. it. I must have, and especially when someone's so adamant. I must have missed that component because I think that absolutely makes sense now knowing their occupation. Um, Because I Mm -hmm. can guarantee you on their end, they have patients who get their prescription in hand and are like, all right, yeah, I'll get it downstairs. And they they just see them (laughs) walking out the door. They're watching them from the upstairs window. And there goes the patient, didn't pick up their prescription, didn't give a fuck. I'm sure they. Dude, I wonder, is that just us? Is it just us that. Does that, uh, like, poison, poison pals, pals guys, please let us know that. if any of you have done that where <laughs> you've yeah, disregarded disregarded a doctor's <laughs> recommended prescription entirely oh my yeah. gosh but yeah. um that's so your yeah, i think your mom makes a great story. point i think she's she hits it on the head there um mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense to me then why they would continue to yeah. follow his advising Meanwhile, as this is all happening, Purdue Pharma was so successful. At, and just by the way, guys, we're almost at the end. We are, we are almost there. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I'm starting no, to no. yawn. And it's not because of the story. It just so happens it's, it's 938 at night. And I, I worked out today. And that, that just, it's a whole Ooh. different level. <laughs> I, I haven't acclimated like you... to the where yes. my energy goes. But it, it's not you, Harini. Exactly. But, uh, no, no, you're yeah. good. You consumed your energy. <laughs> okay. We're going to power through this. Get it. All right. Okay. Meanwhile, Purdue Farm was so successful at selling opioids that they were running out of their raw material. 
So they partner up with a big distributor who had the resources to get them, which is J&J, Johnson & Johnson. Mm. We have talked about them before. Mm -hmm. Coming back. Yeah, yeah. J&J are the quiet kingpins in the opioid epidemic. Not a lot of people. Everyone here is Purdue Pharma, but there are other people involved. Right. They essentially did the same thing as Purdue, where they promoted the use of opioids at higher doses, long term, the whole nine yards. And they also supplied opioids to Purdue and other pharma companies that sold pain meds. They're the, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. quick callback. They're the ones yeah. who discovered fentanyl. Is that correct? Ooh, I Is don't know. The OG Johnson guy. He was Maybe. like a chemist that or something, familiar. and he. I'll, okay, I'll fact check myself while you're doing, but I feel like that's the the recall. Okay, uh, keep going, I and I'll, so. I'll let you know that, in a moment. That sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Okay. So J and J convinces farmers in Tasmania, Australia, because, like I said, they are running out of opioids and places to grow them. J and J convinces farmers in Tasmania, Australia, to switch their crops from potatoes to poppies by offering them incentives like expensive vacations, BMWs, etc., and other such rewards to farmers that produce the most potent crop. So that's what they end up doing. In Australia, they switch all their crops to opioids, so that's how they're able to keep up with the demand. Okay, so back in the U.S., back in these small coal mining towns, Mark Ross, if we remember, he was on the sales rep team for Purdue Pharma, straight out of college, making that good, good money. Mm. His district is in West Virginia, where he grew up. And one of the doctors that he talks with a lot and helps get his patients on OxyContin is a doctor called Dr. Frank Sutherland. Mm. Mark Ross managed his district and convinces Dr. Sutherland to begin prescribing Oxy to his patients, and he did. In the series, Mark recalls how over time he would notice that the number of patients in Dr. Sutherland's waiting room would grow and the number of patients that seemed more, quote, rough around the edges grew with that. He would also tend to hear bits of conversation among the patients saying things like, this is how many pills you should ask for, etc. Responsibility extends beyond the Sackler dynasty. So to quickly call back to how Oxy works, which talked about the whole content aspect, delayed release, etc. This is how it's supposed to be used. You take it max twice a day because the idea is it gives you 12 hours of relief and then you take another one. Mm-hmm. For any delayed release tablets or capsules, you will see on the bottle itself, it says, do not crush, chew, or break. Swallow mm. whole. But what people would do is that they would crush OxyContin and then snort it. This would mm. bypass the whole delayed release effects so that the dose that they should have been getting slowly over 12 hours, they get in two minutes. Right. I mean, you can just imagine. And what Megan, what you were talking about is like mm-hmm. when you see things in Euphoria and other shows and inter- mm-hmm. entertainment, when they snort something and they like immediately get this like, oh, like this head high and you can right. see it in their face, they're totally relaxed. Yeah. It's because of this. That is real. This okay. It's going straight through the blood brain barrier. Yeah. Exactly. So Mark Ross would tell Dr. Sutherland, hey, I'm hearing patients are starting to crush and snore oxy. So please watch out for any abusers and don't prescribe them oxy if if you know that they're abusers. Mm. And Dr. Sutherland just goes, I know who they are. I know who they are. As if to say, like, I got under control. Right. So Mark backs off. He's like, all right, you know, sure, whatever. But then Mark goes to him again and he catches the tail end of it all. But what he sees is the doctor coming up from behind his desk and he's wiping his nose. The doctor is snorting oxy right off his own desk. Mm. 
Damn. Yeah. This seriously concerns Mark. Because the stories only grow. He keeps hearing from other doctors and this and that. And he decides this needs to be escalated all the way to the top. And like good on him. Like Mm -hmm. he's like, I got to tell the CEO like what's going on in his own company, right? The heads of Purdue need to know about this. So Mark writes a very direct email all the way up the chain of command. He doesn't write the poem yet. He's got to write an email Mm -hmm. notifying everyone of the dangers of Oxy and how this needs to stop. He genuinely thinks that they would listen to one of his one of their best reps. Mm. But they just told him to do what he did best, which is to sell and not be a policeman. Mm. Mark said he feels like I felt like I was a canary in a coal mine, except nobody was running. Yeah. And that's a good place to stop. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we we have just hit the first kind of almost whistleblower situation. Yes. Yes. Um, All right. That's a great place to stop because this is where shit gets real yeah i know real quick i did that Mm -hmm. a quick search on fentanyl it's it was created by paul jansen which is the founder of jansen pharmaceuticals which is a subsidiary Mm -hmm. of johnson and johnson so it wasn't johnson and johnson family that developed slash discovered fentanyl it was paul jansen but um you know his jansen pharmaceuticals is under johnson and johnson and it, fentanyl was discovered in 1960s so this wow, all kind of lined up i wonder if they all kind of like chit chatted i mean paul jansen's belgian but i'm curious if you know those if like what the sacklers were going through was in competition with fentanyl at some point you oh, know totally i mean like so. even what i was saying in the beginning i think merck came out with morphine and then mm. pretty much the same year bayer came out with heroin right like they're like oh we got to come out with something too yeah yeah like, the two, all the big pharmaceutical heads you know yeah without so much like, data behind it but right <laughs> yep okay awesome that sounds great so we will pause there that was already very long so thanks for hanging in there poison pals but i hope you learned something so we will do a part two potentially a part three depending on how much i can cover yeah i think i mean in previous episodes you've definitely broadened my knowledge of the pharmaceutical industry and well that's that's pretty much it but what i was gonna (laughs) say was i think this episode i feel like i've gotten that the most like um i've Mm -hmm. i've i've have had questions answered that I wouldn't even thought have thought to ask. Um, and, but also like um, understanding the FDA and its relationship with yeah. uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, we've talked about that in the past uh, with the uh, COVID vaccines. Cause I think you did an episode on that, but th- you shared a little bit more of the intricacies, which thank you. Cause yeah. I think these are things that, you know, we don't really bother to look into if we're not in that industry and we're just a consumer and that's totally normal and natural but yeah it's like it's important so thank you it's nice to know yeah absolutely thank you yeah guys we can go into antidotes all right unsurprising i already referenced this earlier but my antidote today is that i worked out today (laughs) i have i am notorious for going through really good moments throughout the year where i just hit it hit it hit it and it's great and then i um relapse into like a terribly sedentary state which has been me the last i think probably since november um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i was really nice i have a co-worker who has a uh a gym membership that allows for her to bring a plus one and she's like megan i've been going 
And now I, that I just returned to working from the office, the gym is like right there. And I was like, hey, Perfect. instead of waiting in traffic, why don't I just go and work out yes. a little bit? And and I've said this as an antidote before. It's not like I did anything extreme, but it was just enough to get me sweaty and know that right. like I was active today instead of just kind of chilling the whole time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, everyone move at your own pace. But it is it is liberating to be like, you know what? I feel like running right now. But if yeah. I don't feel like that in the next one minutes, I can just walk, you know, not putting yep. those um, pressures. But I, I mean, the ultimate goal is for me to be a little bit more disciplined in my actual workout <laughs> regimen yeah. and put those. I, I want to go back to, you know, how I was as a college athlete, because mm. that structure, mm-hmm. I think, was really good for yeah. me. But baby steps will get there. That's my antidote. Yes, you will. You mm-hmm. will. I love it. That's I think that's such a fantastic use of time yeah. you're so right instead of sitting in traffic which traffic is bad from mm-hmm. where megan is going to her place so that's right. a great use of time <laughs> Probably the, the only the only workout i could do in traffic is like kegels or something <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you ain't wrong. anybody can do you kegels i think on some level yes 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 yeah exactly <laughs> or you can do but uh, clenchies. clenchies yeah yeah clenchies. glute clenchies yes. mm-hmm. good for the bowels mm-hmm. <laughs> my, on that note uh my antidote is i think it's just checking out our new neighborhood nice I'm, it's just a lot of things i think yeah, i yeah. think i was very nervous i guess about the move um, yeah i think san diego is like my comfort space yeah. for sure so yeah. being up here, I feel like we've done a good job so far of making the space our own. I'm making it very cozy. Right. So I am really enjoying telling Megan, like every night we just turn on the fireplace for maybe a <laughs> tad too long, even yeah, though it's yeah. freaking hot. We got, we, it heats up the house pretty well. So I just yeah. sit and sweat. But I'm like, I have to, I have to get yeah, it on yeah. because it's right. for the vibes and right. it makes me feel good. <laughs> so that's my like little thing of self-care. Yeah. But what I also will say is, and so for backstory people, I really wanted to live in the city and I was like kind of feeling disappointed and sad that I wasn't able to f- secure an apartment in the city, mm. but I'm really, really happy now where I'm at location wise and even the apartment wise, our apartment is dope mm-hmm. and I'm learning like new little things about it. Like for example, when it gets dark, mm-hmm. there are little embedded, mm, what do you call it? Like, um, night lights. Okay that turn on that are like nice. embedded into the wall. So it has like nice little ambient light. And so last night when I went to go shower, they had the ambient light on. And then there's also like a underneath light that just has like a nice strip of warm, glowy light. Right. And that's all I turned. I didn't turn on all the lights. I just turned on those two and it gave it like a total spa sauna feel. So I was like, Oh, I'm just like really feeling luxurious today. Right. (laughs) That's so nice. Went from the shower to the sauna to the fireplace and then (laughs) sat here all night. (laughs) What is that called? Is it, is that recessed lighting? Is that the equivalent? No. Recessed lighting is like, is it? It's recessed lighting, but recessed lighting is is usually on the ceiling, but it's like recessed wall lighting. Like it's embedded into the wall. Yeah. Right. Okay. I even had to look up a picture because I was like, I know what you're talking about. You showed me your apartment and I'm like, damn, mm-hmm. that is some bougie shit because to have that extra like that extra detail of lighting to me. I'm like, that already yeah. makes the place like l- 10 times more expensive looking. Dude, you know what I mean? Like, it does. It truly mm-hmm. does. It like elevates the space in a way you didn't think. Right. And it's also great. Like when you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, 
you have some lights you're not like blindly looking right right yeah 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 (laughs) that's dope but it's a little thing so that's my dope oh well i'm glad you're you know falling in love with your apartment and your neighborhood and, and new city i think that's really i think you were probably super you know occupied with the move and um, speaking from my experience, it does take some time to adjust, yeah. but that's like great that you're finding these small little things that just are like, like, yo, you know what? This was, this was worth, this was worth it given the circumstances right. <laughs> of why we right, moved right. in the first place. But exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, every day Dave's like, so why did we move up here? Like, we're still <laughs> working from home. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I was like, I know. But okay, anyways, it's okay. It's a, this is an antidote. Story. It's an antidote. It's an okay. antidote. It's on high. It's on high. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. I will take us on out of the episode. All right. What's think. it going to be? I don't know. I think I'm going to say don't risk it for that poppy seed biscuit. I love it. <laughs> poppy seed muffins all the way dude i love poppy seed muffins dude they're so fucking good didn't we talk about it when you said that you ate Mm. too much poppy seed muffins and then you did a drug drug test yes but that wasn't me i was telling a story uh but anytime anyone talks about opium and you know the origin of opium is from the poppy flower i always think of the story that my buddy edward told me because edward is he's half ukrainian half russian but his and and in those countries poppy seed bread and poppy seeds in general are like used in everything they fucking love that shit and so he was like my mom used to make the best poppy seed bread but it would have so much poppy seed in it that he like as a college athlete he could no longer eat it because he would test positive (laughs) for opium or opium or whatever like you know so um so so i just thought that was always such a fun fact uh because they just really love it there (laughs) that's uh, that's so unfortunate but also delicious i know man i'm gonna go to costco tomorrow get me some poppy seed muffins some lemon poppy seed muffins nothing better nothing better all right all right guys this is a good close out eat something (laughs) all right peace all right good night good night boys and pals bye